0: Welcome back to the Tapes Archive podcast, where we release interviews that have never been heard before. In this episode, we have another audio documentary for you. This time, it's on the seven-string guitar slinger, Steve Vai. The full video version is available on our YouTube channel. Side note, unlike our other documentaries, Steve Vai was actually involved with the project and approves of our film. Next week, we will be dropping a never-heard-before interview with him, talking about the landmark David Lee Roth album, Eat him and Smile. The Tapes Archive podcast is a proud member of Osiris Media, a global community connecting passionate fans with podcasts and experiences about artists and topics you love. Thanks for tuning in. And now it's time to open the vault. He's one of the world's greatest guitarists, lucky enough to have taken lessons from Joe Satriani at age 12, and gifted enough to play in Frank Zappa's band by age 20. He's played with top-selling acts like David Lee Roth and Whitesnake, built his own revolutionary guitar, made arguably the best solo guitar album ever, and stole an entire movie without saying a word. His name is Steven Tirovai, and this is the history of his first 30 years. One of five siblings, Steve Vi was born on June 6, 1960 in the Long Island Hamlet of Carl Place. He had a loving mom that gave him security and kindness and a father who by example showed him the value of hard work and having a sense of humor. His father was a liquor salesman and a bartender and for a while, drifted into alcoholism until Steve was 12 years old. At that time, his father kicked the habit for good, cold turkey. This would later give Vi plenty of reason. Reasons to stay away from booze and drugs as an adult. Overall, Vi had what he called a tight-knit, typical Italian Catholic family unit. His first musical revelation came at the young age of four years old. His aunt had a piano that no one was allowed to touch. In one of his first acts of rebellion, little Stevie pushed down on the forbidden ivory keys and had a musical epiphany. At that very moment, he realized two things. When he heard music, he could kind of see it. And the creation of music was infinite. You could do whatever you wanted with it. the first musical thing he really loved came from listening to his parents' copy of the West Side Story original soundtrack. He loved the drama, the incredible melodies, the uncanny orchestration, and upon hearing it he knew immediately he wanted to understand and compose music. His mom took note of her son's fascination with music by buying him a spinet organ for his sixth birthday. And Steve quickly started playing melodies with his newfound passion. Steve described the first time he played an actual song. I walked up to a little spinet organ and played the theme song from the horror flick with Betty Davis called, Hush, Hush, Sweet Charlotte. The movie scared me to death and the melody haunted me until I plucked it out. And then I thought, hmm, that's not so scary. At around seven years old, he was given his first record, Yogi Bear and Friends. And then he made a giant leap for his second piece of vinyl by buying Frank Zappa's Freak Out. Around the age of seven, Steve's love affair with the guitar began. He walked into a school's auditorium and saw an older classmate on the stage playing a guitar. Young Vi was enamored, but felt maybe he wasn't cool enough to play such an instrument. At age nine, Steve took another step to becoming an acclaimed musician by following in the path of many other Italian kids growing up on the East Coast by taking up the accordion. Although this would be short-lived, he did connect some essential musical dots with his squeeze box. He was within a few years of knowing what instrument he was destined to conquer next. Also at age nine, Vi formed his first band and wrote his first song. Both were called hot chocolate. Vi said, when I was nine years old, I started a little band with my younger sister, Lillian, who was six. I played the bongos and she played an acoustic guitar with two strings on it. We wrote our first song together and it was called hot chocolate. The lyrics went like this. Hot
1: chocolate, hot chocolate makes you quiver, makes you quake. When you drink it, drink it straight. Hot chocolate.
0: I would have to say that in my whole career, Lillian was my favorite collaborator. We had a joyous, unconditional acceptance of each other's contributions. It's never been quite like that again for anyone else. After Hot Chocolate disbanded, Vi would play the electric piano in the band Ohio Express with his good friend and guitarist, Frank Stroessl. Although Steve was the only one in the Vi household that had a real interest in playing musical instruments, he was not the only one that liked listening to records. When Steve was 12, it was his older sister Pamela that introduced him to the tune that would crystallize his path towards the instrument he wanted to play. The band was Led Zeppelin and
2: the song was Heartbreaker. The following year, Vi
0: would see Led Zeppelin at a sold out Madison Square Garden concert. And 13 short years later, Vi himself would be on that same stage in front of a sold out David Lee Roth audience. At 12, he secretly bought his first guitar for $5 from a buddy, Richard Yankowski, who had it hanging over his wall and never played it. A red Tesco Del Rey with a whammy bar, a lot of switches, and three pickups. He kept it a secret because he thought others would make fun of him for wanting to play. His only problem now was he had no idea how to play his new fretted purchase. It was an afternoon in the middle of 1972, and Vi had just announced to his family, um, I want to change instruments and play the guitar. Vi's father replied grumpily,
1: Porca miseria, Stevie. You got those two accordions. Your teacher says you're doing damn good. What do you want to go play the guitar for?
0: But once Steve started playing the guitar, his parents recognized his great interest and unconditionally supported it. Then came Vi's childhood friend, John Sergio. John was another source for his musical education by turning Steve onto bands like Jethro Tull and taking him to a Queen concert. When Steve saw John playing the guitar, he replied to him, you must be the best guitar player in town. To which John replied, if you think I'm good, you should see my guitar teacher, Joe Satriani. John gave Steve Joe's number. Before meeting with Joe, Steve plunked around on his guitar until all the strings had broken. With Satriani's number, Vi could now start to take lessons from a future guitar master. Since he didn't know how to tune or string it, he had to bring a pack of guitar strings to his initial lesson. For the first month or so, Vi could not afford the five bucks that Joe charged, so he split the cost with Ohio Express bandmate, Frank Strossel. The kindling was starting to ignite, but one thing was missing, amplification. A resourceful kid, Vi figured out how to use his sister's stereo as his first amp. He soon blew out the speakers, but noted they sounded the best right before the death fizzle of the stereo speakers. Steve knew from his early childhood that he wanted to do more than just play one instrument. He wanted to compose and write for the whole orchestra. He had Joe to show him how to wail, but Vi needed to take what he had learned from Joe and expand on it. In the seventh grade, Vi was able to convince his high school to allow him to take a high school class about music theory taught by Bill Westcott, who was a savant genius. Steve self-admits he was average to below average in many things at school, but he soared in music theory class. Steve said, I wanted to take the class, but the teacher thought it might be over my head. But they needed a tuba player in the grade school and high school orchestra band, so I told them that I would take up the tuba if they let me take the class. And it worked. And the tuba also doubled as a colossal bong for my greaser
1: friends.
0: (laughs) By the time Steve was in high school, he had composed his first orchestral score, Sweet Wind from Orange County. And he was also writing new pieces of music daily in manuscript form. Mr. Westcott was not easy on young Bai, because he wanted to teach him the secret language of music that would allow Steve to transcribe and write for each instrument in the band, not just the guitar. Bill Westcott's music theory was what everything else that came after was built on, the foundation of Vi's musical vernacular. There was no greater musical influence in my life, Steve Vi said of Westcott. During high school, Steve would practice nine to 15 hours a day with his guitar. During this time, his parents continued to show their support for their son's playing. When the neighbors complained about the loud guitar, Steve remembered that his dad proudly told him, Hey, shut your ass. That's my son up there playing the guitar. And then my teachers would get upset when I'd bring a guitar to school, Vi recalled. They called my parents and my father would say,
1: My son will bring his guitar wherever he wants.
0: On weekends and summers, Steve started to play in bands. After his keyboard-only stint with Ohio Express, around the age of 13, he joined up with bass player John Sergio and his band Circus. This would be the band where he first got the taste of playing in front of live audiences. This love of playing live and touring would stay with him. Around the age of 14 to 15, he joined a more rock oriented band named Rage. This would be his last band until he went off to college. He loved everything about it, hanging with his friends, girls, getting in trouble, and all that goes into solid typical teenage years. Steve was having a blast, but he knew he had to continue his musical studies post high school. He wasn't thinking about fame and fortune. At the time, he was daydreaming about being a music teacher like Mr. Westcott, or maybe scoring films, and he thought that would be a good life for himself. But regardless, he had to push to that next level in his musical journey by attending one of the most prestigious music schools in the world, Berklee College of Music. His dad showed his support by selling his life insurance policy to help pay for Bye's next round of education.
1: You're looking for trouble. You can to the right
0: one night before leaving for Berkeley, Vi wanted to have one last blowout with his buddies, including one of his best friends, Joe Despagni. That summer, Vi had taken his first and only real job, driving a Dolly Madison ice cream truck. He loved the job. As on several occasions before, Steve would use the truck's freezers to keep his and his friend's beers ice cold steve recounts the last night that i had the ice cream truck we were at a party at this very very rich girl's parents mansion in old westbury i had my ice cream truck parked in the backyard so i'm at this party and the place gets raided by the cops when vi tried to nonchalantly drive out of the yard and away from the bust he was stopped by a confused police officer i stopped the truck opened the little serving window and said, can I help you? As I would to any customer. With a disbelieving look on his face, he said, what is an ice cream truck doing? Uh, Forget it, get out of here. Good fortune had smiled upon him, something he might have to pay for later. Later that night, around 4 a.m., Vi and his buddy, Joe Despagny, finished up the evening at Steve's house with a ritual, the DIY tuna melt. Oh, God, Vi recalled, we would pig out on some outrageous concoctions, try tuna fish with a ton of mayonnaise and mustard, splattered on some Italian bread, covered with a pound of Velveeta cheese and bologna, baked to a golden crisp and devoured before bedtime. Oh, it was good. We savored every last morsel as if it was God's reward to us for having such a righteous time and escaping the police unscathed. But then again, in the condition we were in, we could have eaten broken glass and enjoyed it. But by the next morning, the worm had turned. As Vi recalled, I woke up in the morning feeling awful. I mean, wow. You know the feeling when your brain feels like wet bread? I crawled out of bed at 8am because I had to return the ice cream truck that day. I was sitting in the kitchen and my dear old beautiful mom says, If you'd like me to make you some lunch later, Steve, there's one can of tuna left. Hmm. Sorry mom, Joe and I ate that last night, I replied. You couldn't have, dear. There was only one can left. And it's still in there. I walked over to the cabinet and opened it. There was the lonely little can of tuna sitting on the shelf. If this was the only can, I pondered, then what did Joe and I eat last night? It was at this precise moment that my eyes spied the trash can to find an empty cat food tin staring back at me. Immediately, Vi raced to the refrigerator, hoping he could chug something down to keep his stomach in place. Thankfully, there was a full jug of his mom's iced tea, well known among Vi's friends as a cure-all for hangovers. Or so he thought. Now, I believe it was the very second that it hit my mouth that I realized it wasn't mom's special iced tea at all. The phlegm-like texture sloshed down my throat and thudded in my stomach before I could even pull the bottle away from my mouth. That's when I noticed, much to my chagrin, that I had taken a monster swig of pure cooking grease. Things devolved significantly from there. After innumerable abominations in the bathroom, Vi miserably realized he still had to return the ice cream truck. He'd be leaving for Berkeley the next day. And though he left the house feeling so sick that he couldn't even hear, he decided to take one last nostalgic tour of the town in his beloved truck. until he tore out the roof of the dairy Barnes drive through as he attempted to show off his truck one last time to a friend who worked there. He called Joe for help. Joe hung up, but after further calls and persuasion, his buddy, also hung over, came down to sort out the broken glass, the destroyed drive through roof, and the truck wedged under it all. What a memorable last day at home and the end of Vi's childhood years. In the fall of 1978, Vi attended Berklee College of Music in Boston, where he lived in borderline poverty. He would only have one light on at a time in his small apartment. He said the rats were big enough you could wrestle them. Steve and his roommate were so broke during this time that his roommate, who worked in a delicatessen, would open up the back door of the establishment and sneak out blocks of cheese for Steve to come and secretly pick up. On the way home, he would stop at McDonald's to pocket some small packets of ketchup, and when his friend would return home from work, they would feast on cheese and ketchup. Despite being broke, he loved going to Berkeley. There was always someone to jam with, And Vi credited the school as the place where the world of music opened up to him, saying that the best music education I got was at the school's listening library, where they had every kind of music available. Being exposed to different kinds of music was a big contributor to my musical awakening. While at Berkeley, Vi met classmate Pia Mayako, later to play bass in the all-female metal band Vixen. The two fell in love and would eventually marry in 1988. Bai would form two bands while at Berkeley. In the first group, Axis, he wrote some of the music that would end up on his solo album, Flexible, a few years later. But it was the demo tape from his second band, Morning Thunder, that would be one of the first things that got Frank Zappa's attention. The weird thing was, this wasn't the first time Vi tried to connect with Zappa. Their story was a little windier than that. Steve was around 16 years old when one of his buddies showed him a Rolodex he had stolen from a New York recording studio. Steve could not believe it when he saw his idol, Frank Zappa's number, right there in black and white. So he called Mr. Zappa, but his wife Gail answered. She was patient in listening to Steve profess his love for Frank's music, and Gail mentioned to him that Frank is on tour, but you can call him back in six months, and teenage Vi did just that. Every six months, he would call the Zappas home. Sometimes Gail would answer, but Frank was never available. Finally, in Steve's first year at Berkeley, when he made his annual call, Zappa actually happened to be around. He picked up the phone and was in a talkative mood. Steve had read that Frank was looking for some Edgar Varese scores, and Steve, wanting to impress Zappa, suggested he could Xerox them from the Boston Library and send them to Frank. Feeling the timing was right, Steve suggested he could also send his transcribed version of Zappa's black page and the Morning Thunder demo tape. Frank said, sure. Vi thought maybe that was all of the interaction he was going to have with Frank. But Zappa was thoroughly impressed with Steve's transcription as well as his playing. So Frank suggested that Vi record himself playing Black Page regular tempo and as fast as he possibly could. Steve did so and sent Zappa the recording. It was so good, he wanted Steve to try out for his band. But once he found out how old Vi was, Zappa felt 18 was just too young for everything recording and touring would demand. But Zappa did hire Vi to transcribe his music at 10 bucks a page. Up until this time, Steve had never seen his name in print. Pre-internet, this was a much bigger deal to up-and-coming musicians. Then someone sent him a copy of November, 1979's Musicians Industry Magazine, where Frank talked up how good Steve was and, amongst other comments, Zappa said, "'I think he's going to turn into something.'" Such mind-blowing compliments drove Vi to drift away from school. It's rumored that Vi was blowing off most of his classes to do his transcription work for Frank. Vi had to make a decision. He couldn't do both. But since the green musician felt there was much more to learn from Frank than school, Vi quit Berkeley in December 1979, just a little over a year after starting there. He would later receive an honorary degree from Berkeley. His move to California on June 7, 1980, along with Berkeley friend Marty Schwartz, was fulfilling three dreams to be closer to and work for Frank, to live out his childhood dream of being in a traveling rock band like the Partridge family's Danny Bonaducci, and to find a stuffed monkey that his mom said went to California. She had really thrown away toddler Vi's favorite stuffed animal due to it falling apart, but she told her son that the monkey had taken the train to California. Upon arriving on the West Coast, Steve continued to work tirelessly on transcribing Frank's music. This would later be published in the Frank Zappa Guitar Book. One day, Zappa asked Vi to transcribe and learn a guitar solo called Persona Non Grata. This name was later changed to the theme to the third movement of Sinister Footwear. Steve doubled Frank's solo, which led Frank to have Steve record perhaps 80% of the guitars on the You Are What You Is album. Zappa was so impressed with his growth in the last two years that he asked Vi to try out for the touring band, which was against Frank's manager's wishes due to the expense of adding another member. Frank was tough on young Vi during the tryout, even commenting, Hey, I hear Linda Ronstadt's looking for a guitarist. At the end of the audition, Steve, feeling crushed, apologized to Frank for letting him down. Frank happily retorted, You're in the band! In seven short years, Steve had gone from playing guitar in his bedroom to playing for one of the most renowned musicians ever. The little Italian virtuoso was born. Zappa would later say about Vi, I feel comfortable playing with Steve Vi. I mean... I like the way he plays. I think he's really a great guitar player. He does everything on the guitar that I can't do. He does all the stock Stratocaster noises, and he makes everything that Van Halen ever dreamed of, and then some. He reads music. He plays 16th notes, which I don't play. He does all the stuff that I don't do. And I think that our styles are complimentary. He's a good musician, and I enjoy playing with him because he's not just a Mongolian string bender and he's a thoroughly trained musical person, and I like working with him. One, two, three, four. Vi's first tour with Zappa was in the fall of 1980. 35 dates in the US, with a couple of performances in Canada. Steve asked Frank for an honest appraisal of his first night with the group. He said, your playing is really great, but your tone sounds like an electric ham sandwich. Steve responded, But I have all the right gear. I got the Strat, the Marshall, etc. To which Frank replied, Your tone is in your head. head. This one statement not only helped the guitarist redefine his tone, but it kicked off a lifelong inner journey of self discovery. Vi thought, If the tone of my guitar is produced in my head based on how I'm hearing it, what else is in there that I believe? things seemed to be going pretty well for the Carl Place native. But for no apparent reason, after the November 6, 1980 Zappa Montreal concert, Vi had a terrible anxiety attack, which led to the prolonged manic depression and constant anxiety. At one point, it got so bad, he was on the verge of suicide. None of it made sense to Steve. He had great friends and a decent paying job he loved. He thought maybe what his aunt had told him when he was a very young boy was true. If you become famous, you would become insane
1: Are they crazy? I Are
0: was totally they unbalanced sainted? there was like a short circuit going on in my soul Are not knowing what to do Vi turned in many directions looking for answers he even had himself audited via an e-meter with a Scientology cult The dark period lasted for over a year and a half. Then he came to the point where he acknowledged the fact that he didn't really know anything about life, but he wanted to know the truth. Mysteriously, the book The Magic in Your Mind by U.S. Anderson showed up in his mailbox shortly after his surrender. The book professed that a man changes the state of his outer world by changing the state of his inner world. Everything that comes to him from the outside is the result of his own consciousness. By understanding the process and effect of mental imagery, he goes directly along the path to his goal. This 250-page book turned on Vi's inner light that would guide him not only out of his dark period, but would also cement the foundation he would build on for the rest of his life. out and consumed other similar books that he would find in the used section from his frequent visits to the Bodhi Tree Bookstore, a metaphysical bookstore in West Hollywood. He became a vegetarian, stopped smoking cigarettes, and even though he had never been a big drinker before, he quit drinking alcohol. Slowly, all of these positive steps were taking their wanted effect. Around the time the Zappa Tour got to Europe in mid-1982, almost two years after it had started, Steve started to shake off his feelings of dread for good. This would set up a turning point for him because the Zappa Touring Train was about to come to an end. Vi would need to find another gig. The Zappa tour was on its last date on July 14th, 1982 in Palermo, Italy. A clash erupted between over-eager police wanting to bash heads and fans that just wanted to be closer to the stage. During the song Cocaine Decisions, the police started to shoot tear gas into the crowd and a full-blown riot broke out.
1: Now listen, we want to continue the concert, we want to keep playing music. Will you please be calm, sit down, and relax so we can play music.
0: They ended the gig after only 59 minutes, and for the time being, Frank decided he was done with touring. The entire band had to escape the area wearing bulletproof vests and ducking in between cars to get to an escape van. The next day, Steve flew directly to New York to visit his parents. And upon waking in the morning, he read in the newspaper that three people were shot at a riot during a Frank Zappa show in Palermo, Sicily the night before. Many years later, Vi would reflect on his time with Zappa and what he had learned from Frank as a person. I knew everything he was doing on a musical theory level. There wasn't anything that he did that baffled me, with the exception of how inspired it was. The academics of his musicality were advanced for sure, but his imagination was unconditioned. The most important ethic he took away from his time with Zappa was honesty. Vi has told the story of when he was transcribing for Frank and he would create lead sheets. A lead sheet is a simplified version of a musical score, providing just the melody, lyrics, and chord names. The lead sheet would be created to determine how ASCAP would compensate you for your song. ASCAP, or American Society of Composers, Authors, and Publishers, is an organization that would collect royalties on behalf of musicians and then in turn pay the artist. The amount of bars in a song would determine how much the artist would be paid. Steve was working on a song where he could have added more bars to the same song without really changing the song. Hence, Zappa would be paid more. When Vi brought this up to Zappa, Frank retorted, just do the song the way it's supposed to be done. I don't need to make my money that way. This one statement from Frank had a colossal impact on the rest of Steve's life. He realized that there is no need to cheat anyone for anything. Once he was back in his West Hollywood apartment, Vi continued to transcribe and overdub for Zappa. But for the most part, his time playing with Frank was over. The stunt guitarist was leaving the building to focus on his own music. After Vi arrived in Los Angeles, he fulfilled another teenage dream. He purchased a four-track sound-on-sound t quarter-inch tape recorder. He set up his first little studio in his apartment bedroom and named it sci Studio. The studio was covered with Zappa posters and cheesy fake velvet tapestries of belly dancers, dogs playing poker, and Jesus Christ. All sporting Zappa mustaches and beards drawn in with a black Sharpie pen. Here, he recorded many demos, including one called The Night Before, later to be renamed The Attitude Song, which was originally recorded as an audition tape to be submitted for a potential gig with Alice Cooper. Having heard about this gig the night before the tape was due, Vi wrote and recorded the song in a stream of consciousness. Ironically, if Vi would have gotten the gig, he would have been following the masterful, unsung Danny Johnson, who would later replace Vi in the band Alcatraz. As great as Sci Vi was, Vi knew he needed a bigger studio. With a $14,000 down payment he saved up from his work with Zappa, his then girlfriend Pia found a spot in Silmar, California. The house was perfectly situated on a quiet cul-de-sac on a corner lot and more importantly had a shed that Vi could convert into a studio. He took another $3,000 he earned from giving guitar lessons and doing seminars and went out, bought the wood, built the studio and put the gear in entirely by himself. He got the book, The Audio Cyclopedia to help guide him. Vi had no idea how to do any of this before starting the project and even had to borrow some gear from Zappa, but he figured it out and after eight months of hard work, Vi's new studio was ready to record. Vi said, I spent five months insulating it and I loved doing it and because I adorned the walls with various shades of blue silk fabric, I named the place Stucco Blue Studio. Between April and November of 1983, Vi recorded the tracks that would become flexible. Many of the tracks originated as wild studio experiments or even jokes. Vi brought his friends in on the recordings, including bassist Stu Hamm and fellow Zappa band members, drummer Chad Wackerman and keyboardist Bob Harris. There was never less than five people living at Steve's home. So many people at times, it was nicknamed the wayward Inn for refugee musicians. Having this many lodgers though, meant the mortgage was completely paid for with rent money and all of Steve's money went back into his craft, a key business lesson he learned from Zappa. Originally Flexible was to be released on an Evitone FlexiDisc, three discs in all, totaling two and a half hours of music, hence the name Flexible. The original spelling for Flexible was to be the standard spelling for the word. But when the artist working on the cover misspelled the word flexible as flexable with an A-B-L instead of an I-B-L at the end, Steve looked at the seemingly blunder and thought, what if I put a hyphen between flex and able? So it would be a play on the word because he figured in the future, he'd be able to be flexible. Flexi discs were phonograph records pressed on a very thin, flexible sheets of vinyl that were often bound into the pages of music magazines as a free giveaway. Guitar Player magazine in their October 1984 issue did just that and gave away the Attitude song as a free flexi disc. But when printing up the flexi discs proved to be too complicated and Steve wanting to hold a real record with his own music, Vi decided to release it on vinyl. Since vinyl could not hold two and a half hours of music, he would release the work in two installments, Flexible and Flexible Leftovers. Vi also reluctantly decided to attempt to secure a conventional record contract. He was shocked at what he discovered. Then, as now, the standard record deal involves signing away all of your copyrights in return for an upfront advance, generally around $10,000 at the time, and a minuscule royalty of 20 cents a record that would be used to recoup his advance. advance. Vi said, I thought, this is absurd. I'd never sign anything like that. Record labels bank on the fact that artists believe that a record deal is the holy grail. So they're willing to sell their intellectual property very cheaply. But I had no attachment to the idea of being famous or having my record released by a record company. And that gave me the freedom to turn away from that kind of deal without even considering it. Instead, Vi, along with his then-manager Laurel Fishman, formed his own label, Akashic Records. The metaphysical name Akashic Records references a compendium of all universal events, thoughts, words, emotion, and intent ever to have occurred in the past, present, or future in terms of all entities and life forms. But when Vi found out there was already a label named Akashic Records, he changed it to Uranja Records. He got the word Urantia from reading the Urantia book. This spiritual, philosophical, and religious book aims to unite religion, science, and philosophy. Unfortunately, the Urantia Foundation sent Steve a note saying he could not use their name, but fortunately for Vi, he found his next record label name and already the name of his corporation, Light Without Heat, in the writings of the Urantia book. He then founded a distributor, Cliff Colcheri, at Important Records, a raving Zappa fan who became Vi's lifelong friend and ally, Vi would later send a tape to Coltrari of his favorite unknown guitarist, Joe Satriani, who Cliff would sign as well. The important distribution deal netted Vi a generous $4.10 per record sold, and Vi retained his copyrights. A dramatically better deal than a conventional record contract. In January 1984, Flexible was released and began to sell. Although the record showed off Steve's quirky musical sensibility and a kind of humor he inherited from Zappa, there was also some death-defying rock guitar playing. The timing was perfect, since the shred metal virtuoso guitar phenomenon was blasting off. Flexible became one of the genre's cult classics and would net vie millions of dollars over the years. Between the years 1980 and 1990, Vi participated in many music projects, one under the pseudonym Reckless Fable. For some, he was involved creatively. For others, he was a hired gun for a few big names and as a favor to a couple friends. During this period, Vi appeared on over 30 albums, but for this film, we are going to focus on the six most important projects Vi worked on between 1984 and 1990. Alcatraz, the movie Crossroads, the David Lee Roth Band, the Ibanez Gem guitar, White Snake, and his solo album Passion and Warfare. If you did the math, all of these extraordinary accomplishments happened in a six year span. In mid 1984, Steve was playing around town with his band Steve Vai and the Classifieds when he got a call asking if he wanted to try out for the metal band Alcatraz, fronted by ex Rainbow singer Graham Bonnet.
2: The band members
0: of Alcatraz were having clashes with their current guitar player, Yngwie Malmstein. When Yngwie had left the band, with three shows left on the U.S. tour, the band needed a new guitar player, so they auditioned Vi and gave him the job. On July 13th, without any official announcement, and with only one day to learn the music, Vi played his first gig with Alcatraz. Some fans at the De Anza Theater in Riverside, California, had heard a rumor Malmsteen had been replaced, but didn't know what to expect. One fan commented he knew something was up when he saw the stack of Carvin Amps instead of Marshalls. Vi was introduced to Carvin Amps by his mentor, Frank Zappa, and eventually signed an endorsement deal
2: with the company. With Vi on board, the group
0: worked on new material and then headlined a tour in Japan, which introduced Vi to a wider range of fans and allowed the band to play new material that would be recorded on their next album. A concert video was filmed during these dates as well. The band released Disturbing the Peace in the spring of 1985 through Capitol Records. The album was produced by Eddie Kramer, who had worked with Led Zeppelin, Jimi Hendrix, and Kiss among others. God Bless Video was the first single and video, yet MTV barely played it, thinking it was religious music rather than a dig at the new video scene. The album peaked at number 145 and charted for 16 weeks. At this point, Alcatraz had major problems with manager Andy Truman, who decided to devote all of his time to Yngwie, snubbing the band's label Capitol and undermining all touring and promotion. A 20-city co-headlining tour with Uli Roth had to be scrapped. They only played 10 dates in the Southwest US to support the album. Although Disturbing the Peace became another landmark album for the band, 1985 was not a great year for the group overall. However, Vi was about to get an opportunity that would change his career. In 1984 through 85, Ry Cooter and Arlen Roth were the two main musical forces behind the sound of the movie Crossroads. Cooter was the musical director and Roth was originally brought in to teach the actor Ralph Macchio how to make it look like he was really playing the guitar. This evolved into a musical consultant role for Roth. On top of being an influential blues player, Arlen Roth was the first person to release guitar instructional videos via his highly successful, series. The original duel at the end of the movie where Eugene, Rouse's character, had to battle the Devil's guitar player for the soul of his teacher, Willie Brown, was originally supposed to be between Roth and Cooter on the recording. You can hear that full recording on Roth's SoundCloud page. I will link it in the description. As the film progressed, however, the producers were growing less fond of this idea and wanted someone else for the part much to the disappointment of Cooter, who along with Roth had already mapped out and recorded the duel. Nonetheless, Cooter was still the musical director and therefore was tasked with finding a replacement. Keith Richards, Frank Zappa, and Stevie Ray Vaughan were briefly considered for the role, but ultimately the producers were keen on capitalizing on the mid-80s guitar shred boom. Cooter needed to find a young, up-and-coming guitarist who could really sizzle on the fretboard. He called over to Guitar Player Magazine and talked to the editor, Tom Wheeler. Cooter said to him, I need a guy who can play better than Eddie Van Halen. I need a guy who's smart, who can take direction, but he's got to be organized. He can't just do it like a solo. He's got to have his shit worked out. Tom replied, Steve I," and then played the attitude song flexi disc for Cooter over the phone. After listening to it, Cooter said, Jesus, send them to me. Vi was hired and quickly put his own stamp on the part, even writing additional music for the film, including his work on Eugene's Trick Bag, an updated classical piece at the film's climax. was originally only to play the music and not be in the film. But when director Walter Hill saw Steve, he offered him the role of the Devil's Guitar player Jack Butler. Vi first turned down the role, thinking he was no actor, but recanted after Hill suggested he take another look at the script. The guitar duel with Vi was about 15 minutes long, but was edited down to two minutes to heighten the scene's impact. The original version included multi-instrumentalist, blues R&B great, Shuggie Otis cutting heads with Jack Butler. Otis like Vi, played with Frank Zappa when he was young. Otis was only 15 years old when he laid down the bass for Zappa's classic instrumental song, Peaches in Regalia. Otis's part in Crossroads was edited out of the movie, but can be heard on Vi's The Elusive Light and Sound Volume One album, and the cut is called Fried Chicken. Vi, being a resourceful young man, would later recycle riffs from the climactic duel as the basis for his song, Bad Horsey, which can be found on his album, Alien Love Secrets. Except for the slide guitar bits that were played by Ry Cooter, Vi played both sides of the duel. The first four bars of the music is taken from Niccolo Paganini's Cumprir No. 5, but then morphs into a mix of blues and classical music. This was skillfully connected to the story, as according to myth, Paganini apparently sold his soul to the devil in exchange for his musical skills. Vi and Arlen Roth became lifelong friends as a result of working together on the film. However, Vi's appointment was initially disappointing to Roth, who felt that Vi's inclusion permanently dated the movie rather than letting it be more timeless as the original script intended. Many guitarists have stated that seeing the ending climactic scene is why they started to play guitar. Ironically, Vi's infamous guitar parts were left off the Crossroads soundtrack, but the entire duel can be found on Steve's elusive light and sound recording which is a compilation of some of the music Steve contributed to various films. Vi's Hollywood acting career would be sidelined for the next two decades until he played country legend Hank Williams in 2008's Crazy. he also executive produced the film. 14 years later, his fingers starred as Dave Grohl's hands in the horror film 666.
2: But for now, in 1985, his acting career was over.
0: During the same time that Crossroads was being filmed, Spring-Summer of 1985, Vi was preparing for an Alcatraz tour. He was in the shower when the phone rang one day. Steve answered it, dripping with suds, and he heard the lively caller say, Hey man, This is Dave Lee Roth. I'm making a movie and I'm looking for some music. Would you like to come down and write a song for the movie? Vi said sure, but commented that he had to do a short tour with Alcatraz first. Vi then fulfilled his obligations with Alcatraz and was ready to move on to the most coveted guitar spot at the time in all of rock and roll. Mm. diamond david lee roth had left van halen for multiple reasons in 1985 one of them being his pursuit to become a legit actor via him producing his movie crazy from the heat working with roth his creative partner and manager pete angelus planned to direct the movie angelus and roth were known as the fabulous picasso brothers Dave had financing from CBS Films, a script, costumes, locations, and now he needed a band to make the soundtrack. The first person in was nimble-fingered bassist Billy Sheehan, who Roth knew from when Sheehan's band Talus opened for Van Halen five years earlier. After consulting with Ted Templeman, longtime Van Halen producer who produced the forthcoming Crazy from the Heat soundtrack album, Roth offered the guitar gig to Billy Idol's Axeman Steve Stevens. But Stevens told Roth that because of his musical commitments to Idol, he couldn't work on the project. This was when Sheehan and Templeman suggested Vi. Sheehan knew Vi from being on the same label. Relativity. Templeman's connection was through Vi's guitar tech, Elwood Francis. Elwood and Templeman were with Aerosmith during the mixdown of their album, Done With Mirrors. Elwood popped in Vi's solo tape during a session, and Aerosmith and Templeman were all impressed. Outstanding. Knowing that Roth was looking for a guitar player, Templeman shipped the tape off to Diamond Dave. One of Steve Vai's drumming buddies, Chris Frazier, was the first to fill the drumming role, but for unknown reasons, Roth wanted to find someone else. Sheehan and Vai were instructed to locate another drummer, and they brought back big band skin basher, Greg Bissonette. The three sequestered themselves in the basement of Roth's mansion and jammed on new song ideas, while Roth and Angelus were upstairs in pre-production for the doomed movie. In early November 1985, just days before they were set to begin shooting, the phone rang in their studio office. It was Roth's attorney calling to deliver some terrible news. CBS, facing serious financial woes, had shuttered its film division, leaving Angelus and Roth without means to make their movie. Angelus says that after the initial shock dissipated, they began discussing their options. Apart from litigation against CBS for breach of contract, what's our next step? Sheehan recalled telling Roth that day, the hell with it. We've got a band, we've got songs, let's go out and tour. Not that he already didn't think that, and not that he needed encouragement from me, but I just remember thinking, I'm ready to play. In late November, just days after the movie was put on hold, the four musicians set forth to record what would become the landmark album, Eat Em and Smile. The album would be released the following year, in July 1986, to critical and commercial success, selling millions of copies. The tour that followed was also a huge success. From August 1986 until February 1987, the David Lee Roth concerts sold out many dates and played to packed arenas all over North America. Steve Vai had proven, not that he cared, that he was a suitable replacement for Eddie Van Halen. By the end of the tour, Vai knew he would not stay in the group for much longer. Up until 1987, Vi was a free agent in the world of guitar endorsements, which led to heavy courting from all the leading guitar companies. At this time, Steve was playing axes hand-built by Performance Guitar, Charvel, and Jackson. He enlisted his childhood friend and fellow Long Island native, Joe Despagny, to assemble modify and route steve's custom guitars joe and others would assemble parts into a customized super strat for steve and then DeSpagny created vi's infamous flame guitar and was the first person to work out vi's idea of a monkey grip on a guitar vi knew it was time that he needed to have access to guitars that met his needs when he was out on the road or in the studio Right before the 86 tour with Roth, several of Vi's guitars were stolen out of the rehearsal space, so Vi was scrambling to find replacements that could meet the demands of touring. Steve went to Frank Zappa's favorite custom guitar shop, Performance Guitar, to enlist Luthier Cooney Kenny Sagai. Vi shared his desired specs with Cooney and comments from his guitar tech, Elwood Francis. Cooney returned four guitars that were, in essence, the prototype for the future gem guitar. Meanwhile, in 1986, Ibanez realized they were in a losing battle with the guitar of the moment, the Superstrat. Kramer guitar was leading the Superstrat pack with the help of their endorser, Eddie Van Halen. So the top brass at Ibanez made it their goal to find their own Eddie Van Halen to endorse their guitar. The collective thought was Steve Vai was the player to pursue. In September 1986, Ibanez took their prototype Maxis guitar to Steve at a gig in New York. Before the band's soundcheck, Vi plugged the guitar into his amps, upon which the semi-hollow body of the Maxis fed back like crazy. Ibanez then thought maybe a solid body Maxis might work. So in December of 1986, Ibanez sent the green snakeskin guitar to Vi's parents home and asked them to put it under the tree as a gift for Steve. A day after Christmas, Vi called Ibanez to let them know he appreciated the gift but was looking for replicas of his performance guitars. So if they could make a guitar like that, they could talk. He sent all the competing guitar companies what would seem like a simple task. He said, here are the specs for the guitar I want made. Whoever builds it the best, I will endorse. The main things Vi wanted with his guitar were 24 frets compared to the standard 22 and a cutaway body to reach those frets. Double humbucker pickups, like Les Paul's, with one single coil pickup, like on Fender Strats, with a unique pickup selector that split the coils on the humbuckers. Drilled out area behind the whammy bar so you could pull that note exceptionally sharp up to a perfect fifth, or even more, based on the setup. The monkey grip was added for two reasons. It would easily make his guitar recognizable, and he wanted to be able to throw the guitars around in videos and concerts while holding the handle. Ebenez returned to Steve Up. Perfect prototype electric guitar based on his exact specs and Steve entered into an endorsement deal with Ibanez. In June 1987 at the annual National Association of Music Merchants or NAM industry trade show the Ibanez Jim guitar was introduced to the world. Vi named a Jim in the hopes of attracting some business for Despagne's guitar company of the same name. Since then the Jim has gone on to be one of the most famous best-selling and longest-running signature series guitars in the history of the instrument and was one of Vi's smartest business decisions. Ibanez also released a lower end guitar based on the GYM, but without the monkey grip and some other features. This guitar was called the RG and has gone on to be the best selling metal guitar in history. Vi has stated the money he made from the GYM deal financially dwarfs any and all other endeavors. springtime 1987, it was time to start writing and recording the follow-up to the hit album, Eat and Smile. This time, there would be many personal changes from the previous recording. Instead of Ted Templeman in the producer's chair, it would be Roth and Vi. Instead of recording the songs live as a band, they would be pieced together in a more highly produced way. The band members were called in to do their parts as individuals. And maybe the biggest factor was the addition of keyboardist Brett Tuggle. Tuggle had been on tour for the Eat and the rumor was that someone in management had Dave's ear and convinced him that he should tone down the rawness of Eat em and Smile and instead try to capitalize on the current wave of dance music in the late 80s. The thought was, if they could mix a bit of rock with dance, maybe they could transcend Roth to another level. They even made a 12-inch remix version of Stand Up and serviced it to club DJs. ironic that part of the reason Roth left Van Halen was because of Eddie wanting to add more keyboards, but to Roth's credit, he was trying to push the boundaries of his music to bring in new fans. The first one to leave the nest was Sheehan. After his bass parts were replaced with keyboards on the title track Skyscraper, he knew it was time to go. He exited right before the album was to be released and was replaced for the tour with Greg's brother, Matt Bissonette. Although Skyscraper went on to sell a few million records, some fans thought it paled compared to the brilliant rawness of Edom and Smile. But Skyscraper did have a minor hit with the song Just Like Paradise, topping out at number 6 on the Billboard Hot 100 and number. Four on the Billboard singles chart. Unfortunately, due to management missteps, co-writers Roth and Brett Tuggle and co-producer Vi missed out on a small passive income fortune. In his book, Crazy from the Heat, Roth tells the story that the producers of the show 90210 wanted to use the song Just Like Paradise for its theme song. But Roth's manager felt the offer was too low, so he didn't even mention it to him. You can imagine how much money was left on the table since Beverly Hills 90210 90210 would go into syndication with 10 seasons and almost 300 episodes. Before the Skyscraper Tour, Steve knew it would be his last work with Roth as Vi's musical desires were changing. At the end of the tour, Steve handed in his resignation. By December 1988, he was ready to get to his own solo work. It should be noted that Steve and Billy both praise Roth for all that they learned from him and to this day consider him a friend. All the time that Steve was navigating Alcatraz, Crossroads, and the David Lee Roth Band, he knew there was a brand of unique music in him that didn't necessarily fit into any of the bands or situations that he was in prior. January of 1989, an additional roadblock slash opportunity came along to Steve that would delay his solo record a little longer. Another legendary band found themselves in a need of an A-list guitar player. Whitesnake was in the studio recording the follow-up to their previous self-titled album that had sold over 10 million copies. At the time, the band was on top of the heavy metal food chain.
1: In the still of the night, I hear the wolf out, if around your door.
0: White Snake guitarist Adrian Vandenberg was having a wrist issue that prevented him from playing. Later, it was found out that this was the result of a car accident he'd been in years earlier. White Snake founder and singer David Coverdale and Vandenberg had seen Vi in Crossroads and felt he would be the best fit to come in and record for the album. always the smart musician and businessman, could see that not only was the band filled with talented good natured musicians, but this would be an opportunity to also raise awareness for his upcoming solo record. So one month after leaving the tour with Roth, Steve Vai was officially in Whitesnake. The album Slip of the Tongue had already been written and the basic tracks recorded. Here's what Vy said about it. Adrian had made these guide tracks that were basically chords and structures, and I obviously copped a lot of the riffs from those, but I put my spin on them because it was all like one track of guitar. I went in with 20 tracks on some songs. It's a very dense guitar record, and I definitely did my best to decorate it. It was a departure for what Whitesnake was normally known for in the guitar department. During the recording of the album, Vi brought in the first prototype of the Ibanez Universe 7-string. Slip of the Tongue was the first rock record to use a 7-string guitar throughout. The low-end sound he got from the guitar would later be the hallmark tone for bands like Korn, and the entire genre of djent can be traced back to Vi's 7-string Ibanez being the first mass-produced guitar of this type. Looking back on his time with Whitesnake, Vi said it ticked all the right boxes for me because I didn't have to front the band and I was treated like a king. The guys in the band were just fantastic. To this day, I remain very happy with the record itself and I think it stands up as a great sounding record, even if it may be a little bit different from the rest of the Whitesnake albums. Vi finished recording Slip of the Tongue in mid-1989 and then turned his attention to the solo album he had been crafting on and off since 1982. Just as he had for Slip of the Tongue, Vi recorded most of the guitar parts for his upcoming solo album, Passion and Warfare, in his new Hollywood Hills studio, The Mothership. Bits and pieces of it had been recorded five years prior at his previous studio, Stucco Blue, but since at the time, Roth had been against the idea of Steve releasing a solo album while in the David Lee Roth band, the album sat. Side note, in 2016, The Mothership studio would sell to the rapper 2 Chainz, for $2.5 million. Unlike Flexible, Vi now had a full-scale 24-track pro recording studio, seven more years of experience producing, recording, writing, and playing the guitar, and the ego to not care if anyone would like or buy the album. And on top of that, he had something at the time no other guitarist had, his custom seven-string Ibanez Universe guitar, which helped give the album a unique heavy guitar tone. He also used his classic Green Mini Charvel. He would later give the Ibanez 7-string universe guitar he used on For the Love of God to Prince. Passion and Warfare was mostly written around a series of dreams that Vi had when he was younger. Around the age of 12, in his own secret language, Steve started keeping dream journals. He experimented with making tapes and listening to them while he slept. Events started happening in his dream state. Steve described these events as astral projections. At 16 years old, he started trying to be more conscious during his dreams. He could see himself very vividly playing the guitar better than he knew he could in real life. Things made more sense in the dream state. The events that took place, the state of mind he was in, and the things that he felt are reflected on passion and warfare. Vi said, I took the insights from these states of being and brought them into the audible world as songs, where each song had a specific concept related to this experience, the dreams, that took place. That's the creative concept that I used to craft the melodic and harmonic atmospheres that made Passion and Warfare what it is. With the White Snake Tour set to kick off in February 1990 and lasting most of the year, Vi only had a few months to wrap it up. So for the next five months, Steve worked feverishly to complete the record. The only people allowed in the studio were Vi, Stu Ham on bass, Chris Frazier and Trish Emboden on drums, Dave Rosenthal on keys, and his engineer intern, Pascal Follette. Pascal was a French exchange student studying engineering and needing an internship, he wrote to Vi, who eventually approved. Vi has commented on Follette that he was instrumental in helping get this record done on time.
1: I'm looking through this book of CD sound effects, I'm gonna put some sound effects in and then double them on the guitar. Never
0: been done. Perfect. One thing Vi did that may seem like a time saver, but instead actually took more time, was the use of samples. Hundreds of audio samples were used on Passion and Warfare. From the obvious David Coverdale at the end of Liberty.
2: We may be human, but we're still animals
0: to samples only Vi himself know where they came from. Vi was pushing the boundaries of a so-called guitar record with skilled playing and multi layer production. For instance, on Liberty, in addition to some horn and string samples, he also used ACDC's cannons blasting from their song for those about to
1: rock.
0: But only after he tripled it and made it an octave lower. He had a slew of sound effects CDs, but none of them came close to the raw explosiveness of ACDC's Gun Blast. On the audience's listening, he enlisted his favorite 8th grade teacher and later very good friend, Nancy Fagan. He had her improv into a recorder and used those bits in the song. Side note, she is not the same person in the music video. Vi did not want to subject her to the type of crap you'd have to go through to make a video.
1: That's Steve Vi, what a nice little boy. On Ballerina
0: 1224, Vi utilized an Italian interviewer who was interviewing him to say,
2: La ballerina si chiama bella russa,
0: which reminded him how his grandma used to call him my beautiful rose. He also added his newly born son Julian's debut vocal by adding a sample of him. For one of the riddle samples, Steve may have used a sample that has never been used on any other album. Warning, this will be a bit gross, so you may want to skip it. Here goes. Back in his four-track recorder days, he would record everything. He had a cat that was in heat and tearing up his furniture. He asked his vet what he should do. He said to relieve her with a thermometer. Steve could not do it, but one of his buddies did. The feline pleasure sample is on the track, but backwards and different speeds. The riddle also includes a sample from a reverend preaching that Steve had recorded off the radio when he was 15 years old.
1: I pledge allegiance to the flop.
0: I think it's fair to say Vi is a lifelong audio hoarder. His audio hoarder trait also applies to reusing melodies. The song Answers has a seven note motif that was inspired by a riff that Frank Zappa had shown him years before, but never used himself. Vi changed it slightly, but kept the gist as an ode to Zappa. It was first heard twice on the Flexible album. First on Little Green Men, and then on Junkie. When he was with Alcatraz, he added to the intro to Wire and Wood. Vi said he likes the rhythmic tension of the melody and how it seems to push the songs forward. It also reminds him fondly of a specific time in his life with Frank, so why not reuse it?
1: This is Greasy Kid Stuff Mix 12 Ground Zero with the melody guitars up 0.3, bass up 0.4, kickdown 0.5, overheads up 0.4, less gate on the snare, and 3db added a 10k on the Poltex to the rhythm guitars. We're rolling. <laughs>
0: When people talk about passion and warfare, it inevitably revolves around his unhuman-like guitar playing. But often missed is Vi's sonically pleasing album production. You see this in his revolutionary use of the Eventide H3000 Harmonizer. Thanks to Vi, the H3000 was the first harmonizer with diatonic pitch change along with other features Vi suggested. Besides changing the guitar tone game with the H3000 and his seven-string Ibanez, Vi's mastery in the studio also included well-developed listing abilities, deep musical knowledge, effective project management, and leadership skills. As a producer-engineer, Vi proved he is on par with the previous producers he had worked with from Templeman to Zappa. The way the guitar cuts through your speaker, yet never drowns out the pounding bass, punching drums, or Pia's one chord on the song answers is a tremendous feat of audio frequency balancing. All of the songs on Passion and Warfare have a special connection and meaning to Vi, but one of the songs was treated differently than all the rest. After recording and mixing all the other tracks, Vi turned his attention to For the Love of God. By the time he got to the song, it had been almost two weeks since he had touched a guitar. On top of that, he was in the middle of a 10-day fast and towards the end of a manic work schedule. While taking a day or two to get his chops back, he realized his once thickly callous fingertips were thin-skinned and out of shape. They were painful to touch, and he could see blood clots below the surface. He said, I was trying to push myself to the limit. When it came time to record for the love of God, my fingers were totally gone. I needed to be in that state of mind to record this song, and I was in absolute pain because of my fingers but his first attempt at the complex song was scrapped. He tried to do the song in parts to minimize the pain, but when he listened to it, he thought it sounded choppy. So he redid the whole piece in one take, turned out the lights and left the studio. Later he said, when I was done, I said, that's it. That's the best I can do. When he completed the record, he still didn't have a title and attempted to put all these thoughts and experiences into an album title. He believed the whole human race is very passionate about a similar single goal, though most don't realize what it is. But you're constantly fighting with the forces, certain entities that try to keep you from your goal, and that's the warfare. He sat down and wrote the words,
2: Passion and Warfare.
0: The timing of the completion of Passion and Warfare and heading out for the White Snake tour happened on the same day. He even stopped at the mastering lab on his way to the airport. This would be Vi's only second time in his recording career that he could create an album exactly how he saw fit without outside influences or commercial concerns. He wanted to make an intense musical statement, but first he needed to change record labels. Back in 1985, Vi had been given a solo record contract from Capitol Records. But once David Lee Roth came along, the album's production was delayed. Now, in 1989, Vi wanted to submit his new solo record for release. When he handed his new album to Capitol Records, many of the personnel at the label had changed and Steve found himself in an environment where he didn't know anybody at the label. He was informed by Capitol Records that upon listening to his new offering, they did not understand it at all and had no idea how to sell it. They also told Steve that they were not going to put anything into the marketing and were also going to cut his advance in half. Not being one to panic, this gave Vi an opportunity to get released from the deal with Capital as they were in breach of the agreement. Vi said, I was very confident in this record, and even though their offering was only half of the original deal, it was still a good chunk of change. But that wasn't the point. The point was that I was a sensitive artist that felt like he had an important piece of work, even though the rest of the world would probably not care for it. I requested a release from the label, and they let me go. Vi sent the record to his old friend, Cliff Coltrari, the guy who took Flexible and sold it years before, and Cliff replied that Relativity Records would love to Release it. Knowing that Cliff was a music lover and would do his best with this piece of his heart, Vi signed the deal. The album came out in May 1990, right in the middle of the White Snake tour. As it turned out, Coverdale suggested Vi take center stage during the tour and play snippets from the album. Seven String Sorcerer, our Mr. Passion and Warfare, Steve Vi! Vi loved the idea of being able to introduce Whitesnake fans to his own work. Rock critic Hugh Fielder summed it up best. Vi transforms what is essentially a heavy metal instrumental album into a sublime guitar extravaganza with some judicious shredding, well-constructed solos with copious amounts of effects broken up by the occasional ballad that can stir the heart while eschewing the obvious cliches. He sold close to a million and a half units. It sold well everywhere except Walmart, which refused to sell the album due to its cover artwork. But even after Vi was done with Whitesnake, he did not tour for the record, partly because he wasn't comfortable as a frontman at the time, and probably more so because he had been touring for the previous four years and had a one-year-old son at home he wanted to spend time with. One month after the release of Passion and Warfare, Steve Vai turned 30 years old. He had accomplished the impossible dream of so many 12-year-old kids who pick up the guitar and fantasize of one day being a rock guitar god. And for the most part, he did it on his own terms, backed with the dedication to put in the work ahead of the success and to never let up. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tapes Archive podcast. Please remember, you can always find more information about the show and the individual episodes at our website, thetapesarchive.com. Until next time, the vault is closed.